Hello everyone, welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, is Matt Risby. Hello Matt. Hello. And fresh from her visit to the big smoke, Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Hello Ed, I'm grand, thank you. Glad to be home. <laughs> yeah, I, I always thought it was, you know, Matt was away because he wanted to watch the big game. You were away because you had to go to the big smoke. I think this means the rule of three dictates that I need to get thrown into jail this week so I can go <laughs> to the big house. And <laughs> I don't want to do that, but it's out of my hand. The, the momentum of fate is going to carry me along. Mm, yeah, you could go to the big top. Mm. If there's a circus in town, do they do? Is circus a thing still? Does that happen still? I mean, there's a Cirque du Soleil at Disney Springs, so I could go and watch that, but I've already been. <laughs> and I don't know, <laughs> other than the clowns that go out and frighten tourists and <laughs> force them to be involved in the show, I don't think there's a huge amount of variation from performance <laughs> to performance. Well, <laughs> it's either watching Cirque du Soleil again or getting comfy in a cell. Up to you, Ed. Mm, yeah there's really it's a choice that isn't a choice isn't it really um <laughs> so we'll go on to the news for this week and i think probably the uh, i mean there's there were lots of things that happened in this in the week but the one that happened most recently and it's kind of the most salient i guess in terms of um, stories we've been talking about for a little while were the news that the oscars have done the latest in several u-turns on which awards they're going to air Next Sunday, when the ceremony happens for a while, they said they were going to, in order to cut time, they were going to cut several categories from the board broadcast, most notably editing and cinematography. That led to a backlash from uh, a lot of people in online, including former Oscar winners, like people like Guillermo del Toro and Alfonso Cuaron, who said this is basically the lifeblood of cinema, how a scene is cut together and how it's shot. How can you leave them off the broadcast? Then in the week, they kind of half walked back by saying, well, we're just going to cut the footage of them walking to the stage so that, you know, people will still see the speeches. But then just uh, two days ago, they said, they they did a complete U-turn and said, actually, no, we're going to show everything now. And uh, this it kind of adds to this picture emerging of uh, an Oscars being conducted by people who have absolutely no clue what they're doing. Hmm. I don't know if it's possible to have one that seems less organised in the time they let James Franco <laughs> present it, <laughs> but mm. they really have gone for it. If you, even if you go far as back as you know them saying they were going to do, you know, the popular film Oscar. And then, mm. then walking that back and then saying, well, okay, Kevin Hart will host it. And then walking that back and then saying, okay, we'll not present all the awards. And then walking that back. It's just like, it, it really is a shambles. And like the Oscars shouldn't be hard. It is <laughs> like, the, you know, your big night, you slap each other on the back. You all have a hamburger and go home. And they can't even get it right. I mean, they couldn't even, in like you know, 15 years ago, if they'd have had this crisis, they'd have just rolled out Billy Crystal. He'd have chucked <laughs> together some quips and it would have just been a passable evening. And they just don't even seem to be able to cobble that together. Like, I don't know what they think is the problem. You know, just read mm. read the winners out, you know, and just stand up and clap and then fuck off. Yeah, it's less uh, not being able to organise a piss-up in a brewery and not able to get together a circle jerk in a shopping mall. <laughs> yeah, Surely that's exactly. incredibly straightforward, like you say, Matt. And I think um, it's just getting to this point where it's like the Oscars was never actually meant to withstand this kind of public scrutiny. I think we've mm. mistaken this one award ceremony and yes one that is renowned around the world and does seem to hold a certain kind of it's a certain sort of standard bearer but it can't do that anymore it's it's too archaic a thing to encapsulate everything so they can't make anyone happy and the problem is is that because they're trying i think too hard to make everyone happy and they're not changing things at a fundamental structural level all they're going to come across is as contrived and hollow. And I think it, it may even be time to put it out to pasture. I still don't understand why it's really televised at all. Because who, mm. who, who is sitting up and watching everything? I think either show the whole thing 
in every little wonderful, miserable bit. I want to see A-list stars getting drunk and tired so that they're sober again and then counting down until they can go to In-N-Out Burger. Like, that I am here for. So go one way or the other. Show nothing or show every single excruciating high-definition detail. But don't, Mm. yeah. Don't half-arse it. Don't half-arse it. Full-arse it. And we know there's plenty Mm. of arses that will be happily full in that room. Mm. Like, come on. I think it's like like when the Oscars first started, it was just like an Academy luncheon. They'd all have lunch. Yeah. At some point, Gene Kelly would probably stand up and say, hey, nice one, and then someone <laughs> would come out and accept an Oscar off him. But they then that tradition still carries on. They still have the Academy luncheon, the nominees. They all get together. They, have a, you know, they eat dinner, whatever, and that happens. I would like everyone to... That could be the Oscars. They have a lunch, but everyone's mic'd up like a Robert Altman film. <laughs> and the camera just kind of floats around. And you've got kind of like Vigo Mortensen just saying, oh, man, this chicken's a bit dry. And then like other people like, um, you know, talking about, oh, I wonder if I'm going to win. And they just get all this kind of bitching and like all these things people don't realize when they're being recorded. And, you know, just watch it unfold in real time. Because really, like reading out all the nominees and the winners takes about 19 minutes. Yeah. Mm. Like you don't need the songs. We don't have the costume designers do a fashion show. Why do we need the songs? Move on. Let's do something else. And then you just roll it all out. Hour and a half done. Three courses. Boom. <laughs> Three courses and maybe petty fours. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a classy affair. <laughs> what I would like to see is if you did do it like that, that you would get like an upstairs, downstairs dynamic between the above the line people and then all the technical people. Uh, mm. I think you could get a very clear dynamic because I'm going to assume that like, Rachel Weiss isn't going to be sitting with the sound engineers. Like, I'm pretty sure they're going to group together all the famous people together and then all of the kind of charmingly weird behind-the-scenes people are probably going to have their own tables. Mm. That said, I, I do picture Rachel Weiss on film sets, like, playing cards and smoking a fag with the grips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, she's, she's got a poker racket going. It's basically like Molly's game when she's up in town like i bet i mean she's married to bond like for fuck's sake i think but that's is that not maybe uh, a possible way to uh, ameliorate um the oscars is to do what they do with the emmys where you've got kind of your flashy people that you actually see on tv and then you've got the craft um which is always mm. uh, tends to be attended by at least a couple of the faces that you recognize and that's still a ceremony in its own right i don't think it's televised it could look, I think, on, on the surface like a divide, but I think it's literally an above-below-the-line thing. It's like, let's get all the technical people together and celebrate them as artists, and then we'll get all, all the people who are that more, much more public-facing. Is that, is that too charitable of me, maybe? I think there is already another technical Oscars, isn't there? Is There's there? like a technical technical Oscars for what? like behind behind the scenes. Oh jeez. Um and yeah, that's that's a thing that actually happens. But it's like for the it's the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Yeah. And like the science part is recognized separately for the mm. year. Oh, which yeah. is you know, that's even more so that's like the real fucking nerds. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> they can't even be on TV. Yeah, so you're like those people are really kept off the set. Do you know what I mean? I think Oh, man, I saw someone on Instagram saying that they were presenting them. It was like a famous actor. I can't remember who it was. Not a great story. I'm not going <laughs> to have a bit. So that story really was once there was a man doing a thing and I don't know about it. There you go. The end. You had something to say, Ed. I'm sure it was better than what I did. I was just going to say that as to offer kind of like a defense of the Oscars as an institution, as it being televised and everything, and, and this is kind of like the reason why... I look forward to it being on TV every year and why I wish it was better is that the Academy does a lot of, they do a hell of a lot of things that aren't related to the Oscars. They do a lot in film preservation. I shared the uh, interview with you guys in the week that Steven Soderbergh did with David Sims for The Atlantic, where he talks about how pretty much all of his films are archived and saved now because of the Academy, like restoring them Mm. and Previously to that, they were just in like a a locker somewhere that he had to pay for, and now they exist for all time and are going to be upkept. And that's basically what ninety percent of what the academy does is is film preservation, is doing all these things that are really, in a sense, kind of noble in terms of like preserving the history of film and 
advocating for it as this important art form and that's and a lot of the money they raise is from having this big lavish event they do every year that they can sell advertising space for and that they can you know generate a huge amount of attention and money that way and so like i'm perfectly happy with the oscars being televised because it contributes to something that is overwhelmingly uh, a net good but the problem with it is that it's pretty much always just like the worst form of advocating for the <laughs> thing that they spend 90% of their time doing a really good job of supporting because mm. the uh, the events themselves can be kind of sluggish and logy and you occasionally get some moments that are really kind of like fun and charming often from like below the line people who come up and they're people who will I'm going to say never get a chance to be on a stage in front of uh, a billion people again and they get to kind of like shoot their shot and say something really kind of like sweet and meaningful and get immortalized in the history of of cinema that way and that sort of stuff is really nice but the actual thing itself is just this behemoth that no one seems to enjoy watching or making (laughs) and it just seems like there has to be some sort of balance that can be struck for the spectacle. And and also in terms of like the songs, I think I personally always look forward to the song performances, uh, assuming the songs are good because you can occasionally get these like lovely little moments, like when they did, uh, when a mighty wind was nominated and you got Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara getting to go up and perform the, the lovely song from that or Eric yeah. Smith performing when he was nominated for uh, Miss Misery from, goodwill hunting no, so like I mean, you those, those moments can be like really great and fun oh and sophie stevens last year was really nice and uh, mm-hmm. i would really hope that kendrick lamar and scissor get to perform this year i think that'd be amazing and so uh out of keeping with what the oscars usually is but so much of the, the of it just feels bloated and unnecessary and what it really feels like what you need is someone to come in with an eye to saying okay let's just make sure like you don't need to cut everything but you do have to just make sure that everything that's happening is worth people's time and uh most of the time it just doesn't seem like that's the case Mm. i think if you're right that the academy spends an awful lot of its time and money you know preserving cinema and doing the right thing maybe it's time we up the stakes a little bit which Mm -hmm. means if you win an award your film gets (laughs) saved if you lose in the fucking bin, mate. Sorry, that's gone. Every copy torched. What What about we kind of throw in some uh, retro Saturday morning kids TV and add some gunge? <laughs> that's what it needs. We need uh, Dave Benson Phillips, who yes. I'm pretty sure is available, um, he and he will come and come and he will drop like someone <laughs> into a tank, a whole tank of gunge if they lose. I'm for or it. if they win, that well they do that. They're like the Nickelodeon Kids Choice Awards, don't they? They always mm. gun someone on that. I say yeah. we bring that in. We have a Best Kiss Award from the MTV Movie Awards. Yes. Um, we gun someone, and we get Mick Fleetwood and Sam Fox to present the whole thing. <laughs> Surely, Perfect. The greatest hosts of any award ceremony ever. So I did mention uh, James Franco earlier. Did anyone see the clip of Anne Hathaway this week when she was talking about? Did uh, I? Did I host- just? Yeah, that was magnificent. <sighs> Wow, she was not pleased. <laughs> no, understandably so. She was properly stitched up. And I think she managed to do an incredibly classy way of being like, yes, yeah, still kind of pissed off about that, but not in a like mm-hmm. grudging way. She was just like, yeah, I was really confused too. And like, if it was a joke, like, let me in on the joke. I can do that. I can be funny. Um, mm. So yeah, I'm glad. Uh, Hashtag justice for Anne. Yeah. Mm, indeed. So uh, this next story is a few weeks old because we somehow forgot to talk about it last week. But uh, it really does feel like something that we needed to wait until we had the full firepower of all three of us to really dig into. And that is the trailer for the live action, in, in quotation marks, version of Aladdin <laughs> that we're getting like I, there's lots of arguments i've seen about like whether or not like the new version of the lion king like some people even call them that like live action it's like it's really not <laughs> like they're not real lions uh and like the live action Aladdin, like still probably 80 percent of what you see on screen is not going to be real i see i i thought you uh the quibble about it being live action was because they just all seem dead behind the eyes <laughs> that's definitely yeah. a part of it right but the uh the the teaser for the new version of aladdin 
directed by, of all people, Guy Ritchie, debuted at the Super Bowl and uh, set tongues a-wagging, mainly because of Will Smith's uh, appearance <laughs> and performance in it. I mean, it's hard to say there's much because I think he only really has like one or two lines, but it, it generally seemed to underline, I think, most people's opinions of the project basically since it was announced, which is that this all seems like a mistake. Mm. The the thing that just like smacked me around the face when I watched it is it just felt so fucking cheap. Mm-hmm. And like it for for a film made by one of the richest companies in the world, it looked like a, I don't really know if there's a way to describe this certain thing, but it always happened on a bank holiday in in England or Britain, sorry, where they'd show like a three part American version of like Jason and the Argonauts or something, and it would star like Jeremy London in the lead, and like it had a cast of like you know Burt Reynolds would be in it for like a second. You know those big things, but they cost mm. about fifty p, and they looked terrible. <laughs> it looked like that, and when he comes out as a blue genie. I was like, do you realize the point of this is you want to make people watch this, mm. right? And not like just confirm everyone's worst fears <laughs> about what you think a live action version of Aladdin directed by Guy Ritchie would be like. I'm, I was just completely baffled by the whole thing. Uh, in terms of the, the, I think the British experience of Aladdin as well is also interesting because I think we're all very used to the idea of Aladdin as a panto and mm-hmm it's very hard to see Will Smith in that get-up without thinking of him as being, like, a panto genie. Like, having someone appear to be just in, like, body paint, but with, you know, digital effects slightly making it look a little bit more like he's not just a guy in body paint, but not really hiding it that well. It does lend it, like you say, an air of, of cheapness of associations with you know, something being put on in the village fate. <laughs> I think the thing is for me is that I get absolutely everything of what you're both saying. And for me, it's so disappointing because I think there was such a a great opportunity for this to be something really special. And mm. even though the cast looks pretty great and let's be honest, like it's one of the more, like diverse and sort of like accurate casts that we could get mm-hmm. for Aladdin. Mm. It's still directed by Guy Ritchie and <laughs> he's co he's got a screenwriting credit but along with John August. And I like John August. Like he's a he's a good guy. Um his script notes podcast with Craig Mason is absolutely brilliant. But again, I just feel like but where's where's the writing behind you know, is, is did did Matt Damon Come on, is he is he producing this? Is he like it's on screen? It's fine. So I I don't know. I I feel reticent, and I and I don't want to, but I am. Mm. It yeah. I'm I just kind of like wonder whether or not there's going to be a point at which Disney stops getting away with just remaking their own films. Yeah. And I just wonder whether like Dumbo. Like weirdly, you see the trailers. It looks kind of different enough, I guess. It mm. changed the story a bit, but Aladdin just seems like, oh, this is going to be like super hollow. At least Lion King, which appears again to be very kind of slavishly devoted and and kind of faithfully recreating the original. Um, at least you've got the kind of spectacle of seeing it all done in a different style, maybe. But mm. Aladdin just seems like, oh, we're just doing kind of like a cheap knockoff version, and like for people perhaps a little younger than me, let's say, I'm including you two in this, like Robin Williams' genie was the voice of a lot of people's childhoods. You know what mm. I mean? And like to try and kind of do a subpar knockoff of it, just if the genie doesn't work in Aladdin, the film's dead in the water. And, you know, the trailer does not do a good job of convincing us that they've pulled it off. Hmm. I feel like if this was the only one of these remakes we were getting this year, this probably would kill off Disney's plans for them in the future. Mm-hmm. Because I I'm can't imagine it being like a huge success. This is going to come back and bite me in six months when it does incredibly well. But um, like it does seem like of the ones they have that it's it and Dumbo seem to be on the shakiest of ground. Mm-hmm. But 
uh, and like you say, Dumbo at least looks kind of distinctive enough, and I think there's still enough residual interest in what Tim Burton has uh, has to offer that it'll probably do okay. But because it's cushioned to a great expense, uh, a great extent by Lion King, which is gonna probably do like one and a half billion dollars worldwide with very little effort. You know, if you're comparing it to something like the Beauty and the Beast remake, which basically did the same thing and no one has any memory of, then I think that's probably going to make them think, yeah, we can keep doing this. We had a couple that didn't do as well as we'd hoped, but this one did really, really well. But then, yeah, eventually you're going to get to like the live action Treasure Planet and maybe things will fall off the cliff again and we'll get a a repeat of what happened nearly 20 years ago at this point. Disney are very good at kind of riding something until it just completely dies and uh, i don't think we're there with the live action remakes thing yet mm, yeah yeah it can't be far off though mm. although it's not like this is even that new because they did do that live action jungle book in the 90s with jason scott lee was that so Dis- like, was that disney that was disney yeah oh wow so so they've been trying and finally the technology is allowing them to do it Our last story of the week before we get onto our main topic is the casting news surrounding the new version of Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve, which is coming out next year. The first half of it is coming out next year, at least, because they're going to do that book over two movies, which probably makes sense because it's a pretty big and dense book. And we've had some kind of new details about some of the cast joining it over the last couple of weeks, and um, we'll just run through some of them. Uh, Timothy Chalamet is playing Paul Atreides. Zendaya is Charney. Bautista is Glosu. Have <laughs> your bottom still gone? Uh, I have more, but I'm not going to go continue the rest of the song. But it's weird. Dune and Smallfoot, I think that movie was called. They're, the the names of the characters fit the rhythm of that that video incredibly well. But, uh, you know, it's got Rebecca Ferguson, you've got Charlotte Rampling, you've got Oscar Isaac, because most recently Stellan Skarsgård as Baron Harkonnen, which is honestly a pretty perfect casting. Uh, he basically looks like Baron Harkonnen from the David Lynch version, minus a few boils. Like, it's not going to take too much to really kind of make him look like that character. And I am quite excited for it because i like i mean i don't massively like the david lynch dune but i do uh enjoy it as a, like a really nutty big budget uh, space opera that doesn't entirely work uh but i do love the design and the world and everything so i'm excited to see what it ends up looking like but i also can't help but think that it's going to cost uh, an incredibly large amount of money for anyone who thinks that you're going to make a big blockbuster out of dune which a lot of people have tried to do, and it never seems to have succeeded. Mm. I've never seen Dune. I have never read the book. I don't know anything about it. So all of those things, if I, they could well be made up that you've just said. All those people, <laughs> they could just be kind of random sci-fi names picked out by a generator. And yes, probably Oscar Isaac is in it. Um, mm. I have recently joined the cast. Um <laughs> as a sandworm and that's the one thing i do know that exists in june and yeah i'm pretty sure you two will be added again like shortly um because it seems every fucker is being cast in this film (laughs) which is kind of weird that you're either going to be in the mcu or june (laughs) it's that bigger cast as someone who has also never read june or watched any iteration of it I would still rather be in June than the MCU. Mm. Just going to throw my yeah. hat into that, uh, my my much wanted and chased after hat into that particular ring. <laughs> mm. Yeah, we are available. Um, <laughs> um, and I, personally, I, again, I don't know anything about it. The tone, I know it understand. I've seen Jodorowsky's June. That's all I've seen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, I didn't get the call then. I'm available now. Uh, I'll turn up and just kind of walk around like a, a spice merchants. Would that be a thing? Could I be a spice merchant? Uh, sure. I will mm, be a bag I'll of spice. <laughs> You'll be a baron. Oh, I'll I'll be a bag of spice. But to, to be honest, I'll be whatever they want me to be. <laughs> if Rachel Vise yeah. is there, um, I owe her lots of money, so I'll try and win it back. You owe 
Rachel Vice some spice. Um, <laughs> the three of us are the a veritable garam masala of spice <laughs> uh, merchants that are, will be available. But like, I mean, is it something they? Is there a lot of books in June, Ed? Could they make this into a you know a franchise? Yeah, there's there's I think three or four that Frank Herbert wrote during his lifetime, and then after he died, his son and the science fiction writer Kevin J. Anderson, who I know mainly from having uh, because he wrote dozens of uh, Star Wars extended universe novels in the nineties, he they they wrote a bunch of stuff subsequently. So there's. A decent amount of materials they did want to stretch out, but the first one is maybe the only one that had a huge impact because it was something of a a countercultural touchstone, I think, for a lot of people in the 60s and 70s. And oh, okay. the subsequent ones didn't really have that much of an impact. But, you know, for sci-fi novels, sold pretty well. So it, it, it does feel like... They want it to be the next, like, Lord of the Rings or something, where you take something that is known to a lot of people, loved by a small number of people, and you hope that the visuals and the the entire aesthetic are kind of big enough to draw people, maybe kind of, like, casual onlookers in, which is, you know, seems like a a risk worth taking, but at the same time, it seems really weird that it's a risk they're taking with someone like Denny Villeneuve, who has directed some movies that i've liked a great deal but has basically never had a hit um mm-hmm. arrival is the closest because that was like a modest a modestly budgeted, budgeted movie that did okay but everything else was like either lost a ton of money like the like blade runner 2049 or only did okay but clearly he is liked enough that they're willing to take a risk on what seems like many hundreds of millions of dollars Mm. Matt, have you heard the song Weapon of Choice by Fatboy Slim? I have. Yeah, then you know what Dune is about. Because uh, all the lyrics for that are just quotes from Dune. <laughs> are they actually? Yeah. yeah. No. If you what? want to walk, walk without rhythm and you won't attract the worm, is <laughs> there <laughs> is uh, directly from uh, Dune. Oh, does that mean that Bootsy Collins is a huge Dune fan? I would have to assume so. It seems like something you'd be into. Mm. I wonder, wonder if Crystal Walken's in Dune. Uh, that would be if someone else was making the movie and they wanted to be kind of like pomo and clever they absolutely mm. would do that mm. dune is a movie that has kind of a huge cast a huge ensemble or you know it's it's got a, a reasonably big one at the moment but it's going to balloon because that's the sort of book that just has dozens and dozens of speaking parts that will have to be uh even if you trim it down you're going to have a pretty big cast so Jumping on from that, we're going to talk about ensembles and, you know, movies with large casts. And before we get into the kind of the meat of the discussion, uh, I thought it might be worth trying to define what we mean by ensembles, because like every movie has an ensemble, except for Secret Honor <laughs> or something, you know, unless there's a single actor in a movie, then there there is something of an ensemble. And so what we're talking about is movies that have a notably large cast in which there's a decent number of characters that are all kind of really well defined and really established and that you could really that you could point out a name and say okay this is what this person is doing and this is their motivation it's not just one or two main characters and then a lot of people they have to happen to speak to over the course of the movie and um, I kind of broke down the kinds of ensembles into three broad categories one which I would call pure ensembles which are films that have huge casts and no clear lead like big examples that would be something like magnolia or it's a mad 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 world where you could say there's just a bunch of characters all doing stuff but none of them really you could point to and say this is the person who the film is about then you have uh, focused ensembles which are ones that have one clear lead but the cast are all like they're all kind of fairly developed so something like a boogie nights or the player mm-hmm. would be examples of that and then uh, ensembles in name only, which would be movies that just have big casts, but really the conflict is only about two or three people, which would be something like most versions of the Robin Hood mythos, uh, legend, where the Merry Men, you know, you have this whole cast of these extra people that are always palling around with Robin and going on adventures with him. But really, if you boil the story down, it's just about Robin, Maid Marian, uh, Prince John and the Sheriff. And that's pretty mm-hmm. much it. So those are kind of like the three terms that i kind of thought thought of to cover these do you do you guys kind of agree that that's uh the sort of framework 
for this? Um, I've heard your terms and I accept them. <laughs> Um, we did discuss briefly in the week as to whether there was a limit to how big an ensemble had to be to be technically an ensemble. Because mm. Emily raised the interesting point of something like The Favourite uh, yeah. being an ensemble cast. Yes. Really, it wasn't like... He, it, it, as soon as I hear the word ensemble, I think of like Robert Altman films or something where there's like a big sprawling cast. But Emily's absolutely 100% right. That is an ensemble cast because... Really, they're all the lead, I guess. Mm. Oh, Matt, you know how I love being right. Thank you. That's delicious. Um, yeah, I would <laughs> say that, they, that it is. And I think the interesting thing about The Favourite as well is this kind of meta-narrative that's going on because within the film itself, it's a lot to do with competition between women and power struggles, whereas on the press and awards trail they have nothing but excellent words to say about each other and they mm. are kind of pushing that they come as a package which I think is a really interesting way to fight back at the idea that there could be any sense of like bitchiness or like fighting for prizes like they are like no we come as a package like we we could not have been as good without each other and I would argue that yeah it's three leads but they are three protagonists and they're all mm. the only the only thing that they're fighting for is is power and i think that's the interesting thing about why you don't have one specific lead in that film it's all three of them because they're all jostling to be the lead in a way um mm. so i think it's a really oh i mean yeah I, I dig the favorite what can i say but i would say that's the absolute smallest i've ever seen an ensemble cast in a fe in a feature film I would, and um, I can't really think of many others that would be, that would be the same. So, yeah, top top marks to the favourite for genre bending amongst other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you can really see as well in the favourite the way in which the the way in which it kind of shifts focus of who is the lead at any one point is kind of undeniable, but is not really drawn attention to. I guess you have like the chapter headings, I guess, that kind of divide up the different parts of the story. Yeah. But other than that, you know, the way in which you start it and you think, okay, I guess it starts and it's kind of Emma Stone is the lead because she's the newcomer entering into this particular, very cloistered and uh, claustrophobic environment. Then as she ascends, it becomes a bit more of Rachel Weisz's story. And towards the end, you know, there's a greater focus on. Olivia Coleman and I really one of the things I really appreciated uh, about the movie is that I didn't realize that the lead had shifted until like it was well in the process of having happened I'd be like watching it and thinking oh I guess it's uh, Rachel Weisz's story now cool and I think that's yeah. a real deft little trick that Yorgos Lanthimos pulls in that for sure mm. yeah yeah for sure in terms of like you know big cast where the kind of the, the focus is evenly spread mm -hmm. i had to think about this and i think the film slacker has the most yeah. <laughs> evenly divided ensemble where each character is in the film for approximately three or four minutes and then they move on and then they join another character who's in the film for three or four minutes and then it just goes on from there and mm. you know that is uh, well i mean it's a great film anyway um but that is a film with a you know a really a true ensemble there is so many tiny parts making up one whole yeah and you could not point to that and say who could even possibly even be considered like the central focus of that story like the the, the focus of that story is like the star of that story i guess is like austin maybe or just the concept of the movie itself like mm -hmm. where the, the the central focus is this idea of a camera almost kind of drifting through this small little community of weirdos and the the kind of little uh, pieces of conversation that it p picks up as it goes along. And sure, like on the Criterion DVD, they have, I believe, the image of the woman who's trying to sell Madonna's tampon. But <laughs> like that that's just because that's a particularly memorable moment in the movie. It's not like you say, oh, yeah, the story is really about them. I would also argue that there's not necessarily a clear one person individual lead in Slacker because Richard Linklater is so interested in um, particularly in Slacker and 
waking life and things like that it's mm. it's less a kind of he's kind of dealing with the ego and i think there is this kind of like um spiritual connection hippie-ish idea of breaking down those barriers of individual characters so i say slacker mm. is that first kind of like it's this co- kind of like the one protagonist is this sort of like wave of consciousness that we sort mm. of follow that seems to inhabit these people for a while and then spread on not to make it sound like some great big possession poltergeist film but that's how i see it Mm, yeah absolutely i think another movie from around about that era that you would point to when we've already mentioned robert altman uh, a few times but because he did a lot of these kind of movies but you could definitely say that about something like shortcuts as well where Mm -hmm. it's a load of uh raymond carver short stories that are being thrown together you know that were all written as separate short stories that you know there wasn't this sense that these are all taking place in the same universe even though i guess they all are because it's all the the pacific northwest in in the stories uh and in the film it's really just oh all these stories happen to take place in la and there's a single event that happens to connect them but it's uh the the event that would connect pretty much anyone living in la at any given time and i think there it really is that there are certain stories that stand out maybe you know you would look at and say you know that the uh the jack lemon storyline is particularly impactful in some ways but you couldn't necessarily say that that was the focus any more than like the lily tomlin and tom waits storyline even though the the jack lemon storyline gets a little bit more time it still doesn't feel like oh this is a this is a jack lemon vehicle yeah mm. and it's interesting that Robert Altman is known for having kind of big ensemble casts and and using a rep company within him. And the directors who went on to be inspired by Robert Altman do something similar. You mentioned uh, Magnolia earlier. Like Paul Thomas Anderson does very similar things. Boogie Nights, Mm. Magnolia, to kind of name Inherent Vice, like films where he he will will work with kind of groups of people and big people because that's his stories generally more kind of like sprawling. Um, Even though, you know, something like Phantom Thread is focused on a relatively small handful of characters mm, yeah i i thought it was quite interesting kind of trying to think of films to discuss for this when i thought of inherent vice i was like oh i didn't really think of that as an ensemble movie even though it totally is because mm-hmm. like uh, a lot of stories that have kind of a big cast what you will often have is a single focal point character that you will follow for the most of it because that's an easy guide for the audience and also from a production point of view it's kind of a lot easier if you film like all of the scenes between Joaquin Phoenix and Owen Wilson on like two days and then you don't have to have him kicking around the set for like weeks or whatever because he's only in like the movie for a handful of scenes but it totally is even though it's a story that focuses very keenly on Doc Sportello and his interactions with all these people it's a movie that's uh, rich with incident but also rich with these really identifiable characters and like and really specific and very enjoyable performances that linger longer after the movie is finished but it feels like a very different kind of ensemble movie to uh, boogie nights or to particularly magnolia which is a movie that absolutely doesn't have a a single lead character Mm. and it's interesting that paul thomas anderson does that but someone like wes anderson always works um in ensembles using a lot of the same actors um you know definitely does have a lead to it like something like the grand budapest hotel is rafe finds his story but told Mm. pretty much by the ensemble Mm, totally and then like the royal tenenbaums i guess you probably have lee uh gene hackman as the lead but it'd be hard to hard to really pick someone out from that cast because it's such a huge number of people and they're all fairly big name actors all doing great work Mm. do you think there's a case and this is i'm going to put this to you too is that like that there seems to be a certain obligation for a director when they meet a certain level of success to try and get as many famous people in their film as possible uh and i'd say something like reservoir dogs which is 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 an ensemble and you know went down very well and you know it's a kind of smaller piece i guess a kind of a a uh, a bottle episode of the most violent sitcom you could imagine <laughs> um but as soon as some success uh comes in then you know the next film has a lot showier cast a lot bigger cast uh, um you know a different range of actors you see that with someone like you know 
to say uh, someone who apes Tarantino quite specifically, something like Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels with Guy Ritchie. His next film mm. was a huge sprawling cast with lots of people in a big range of people, non-professional actors, Hollywood A-listers, all that kind of stuff. Do you think that there's this kind of idea that when you get a bit of traction, you can pull in all these actors, so you may as well? Yeah, I think there probably is a lot of that, particularly given um, the aforementioned Mr. Ritchie. Um, <laughs> and I and I think you, you do want to capitalise on that interest in you. And I think there's something quite endearing, maybe, about a director being like, oh, I don't want to miss out on this. I'll just take this <laughs> for as long as I can. Maybe, maybe again, that's maybe me being too charitable. But I think it's also a step up as a director to challenge yourself and handle all of these different performances. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's it's a bit like the kind of, I think often directors are likened to conductors in an orchestra. And I think that's a, a pretty straightforward analogy. But it is just like, oh, well, you know, you've gone from conducting a string quartet to a full <laughs> night night last night at the proms or something like that um mm-hmm. so i think it's nice to see that kind of not not resting on laurels and ratcheting things up i think that's a really great challenge for a director to to take on again if you want mm. to be cynical about it because you guys all know i always want to be cynical about it <laughs> it could be a simple money question because as much mm-hmm. as if you do get a bigger budget and you invest more in bigger cast that's better known yeah it's more of a risk but bigger return mm. you see it a little bit with um with wes anderson in a slightly less cynical way something like rushmore and bottle rocket were focused on smaller ensembles three or four people and then something like the royal tenenbaums comes out and it's like okay i've got more money and i can bring in more people and more people who want to work with me but shit have i got to deliver on giving each of them a meaty role i can't yes. just have them stand mm. in the background and do nothing yeah with him as well, it also feels like, to an extent, every time he makes a new movie, he seems to just make a bunch of new friends that he wants to keep bringing in. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it's not just, oh, like, I, I'm a big enough actor now, I'm a big enough director now that I can get uh, Bruce Willis to be in one of my movies or whatever. It's more a case of being like, oh... I really like working with Tilda Swinton. I need to find things to have, put her into all of the subsequent stuff that I'm going to do. And then, but he almost doesn't seem to want to leave anyone behind every time he goes on to the next project. So it is like, he's just like constantly adding seats to the bus or whatever, you know, to kind of like accommodate all of these people over the years. And he keeps adding collaborators that he just adores working with. And there's something quite nice about that, even though I feel like, by this point, it's kind of distracting, and <laughs> his movies tend to be a little overstuffed. And then, you know, sometimes that works. Like, I think something like Grand Budapest Hotel, which takes place in multiple time periods, it works to have a big cast because you're like, oh, like this actor can play this character at this point in their life, or, you know, here's a whole extra cast that are going to be just p- portraying these characters in the 60s or whatever. But at, uh, but for something like Isle of Dogs, there's it just gets really distracting kind of hearing all of the famous voices pop up mm, yeah do you, do you think like just coming off of that do either of you think that sometimes an ensemble can really drag a movie down just by like oh it's this person oh it's this person oh it's this person i think it depends on the structure i uh, this is mainly levied at um the xyz day franchise Mm. franchise is probably too strong a word but we had valentine's day mother's day and new year's day uh which was kind of mainly helmed by uh the late gary marshall julia roberts tended to be featured and i think that was difficult because it, it rarely felt like a film in itself it just felt like a series of vignettes stitched together between mm-hmm. about two or three people and then there can be mm. quite an act of bending over backwards to try and make them all relate to each other this was the same with he's just not that into you as mm. well uh, where it did definitely feel like oh, a cast of starry stars but there wasn't actually this strong internal structure where you have something like magnolia where it's not actually vignettes like they're all inherently linked to each other even if they're not 
understanding why necessarily but i think when mm. you do just have these kind of star vehicles and yeah it's fine like i i actually quite enjoyed valentine's day in particular but it can just feel a bit like oh who's who's coming up next and everything feels more like a cameo than a performance and i think that mm. kind of um instant gratification but also kind of immediate it almost feels like they disappear as quickly as they appear you know Mm. it's a little bit like a kind of portmanteau isn't it yeah um, like yeah a bit like the much discussed by myself and ed worst film of our podcast lifetime more movie 43 which <laughs> i was going to bring it up on, on paper <laughs> on paper an astonishing cast but uh in practice a truly reprehensible piece of shit um and yeah it's yeah like those those valentine's day films or you know i've not seen any of them but yeah i kind of understand they're not they didn't get them all together in one room did they no. they was there there's no kind of real cohesion other than the kind of the general theme of the valentine's day is it is there just three or is there a is there more coming do you know is there is there it's, a pancake uh, day i think <laughs> i'd like to see a pancake day it um, might be a but, bit flat but it would be oh. just that one Jesus bit of <laughs> it would be just that one bit of ignoring that uh, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. soldiering on for, for me it's just it would just be that one bit of review where andy daly eats 40 pancakes but <laughs> in real time this time yeah fair i think in the case of something like valentine's day as well one of the things that's quite distracting is like this desire to just put in as many famous people into the movie as possible regardless of whether or not they're suited for the part or whether or not they're an actor because mm-hmm. that movie i think it's that one is that the one that has taylor swift in it very briefly is in like a small role i believe it's valentine's day and yeah that one is just like really stands out as like a really a really strange choice and part of me wonders how much of that was gary marshall who obviously was a legendary writer and producer and director and sometime actor who I think at various points in his career had no problems getting a movie made but maybe by that point you know that the kind of genres that he tended to work in which were these kind of like fizzy comedies weren't being made anymore and so that was in some respects the easiest way for him to get a movie made was just to say hey, it's about a broad theme and it's got a lot of famous people in, so people will be curious. And that, I think, ties into a longer history of movies with big casts, which goes back to the the 50s and 60s when you got all these big star vehicles being made, like um, It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World I mentioned earlier, but also something like How the West Was Won, where you just have a huge, huge cast of recognisable actors showing up in a movie because studios are like we don't know what works anymore (laughs) but these people are all famous maybe putting them all in a movie will get people to come and see this and not watch something on television Uh, and maybe the kind of the worst example of that would be something like the uh, Otto Preminger movie Skidoo which is a movie with an absolutely bonkers cast which is all like countercultural icons including like Harry Nielsen writing an entire original soundtrack for it including a song in which he just sings the names of the cast but then also features like Groucho Marx in his last role. It's just like a real, <laughs> real weird, weird hodgepodge where Otto Preminger's being like, I can, you know, make something that kids will like. I'm going to make a movie about people doing drugs and like trying to start a happening. But it's going to focus on like the like sitcom dads and stars of yesteryear. <laughs> it's like it's a real, real weird hodgepodge of a of a cast for a movie that's like not really that good but is fascinating for looking at you know a very particular time in Hollywood of someone who had had this long illustrious career of making movies that connected with big audiences being like I really don't know what people want anymore so I'm just going to try whatever I can there's a an interesting um kind of counterpoint to those old kind of Hollywood movies that tried to squeeze in as many famous people as possible and it's a small subgenre of the ensemble film which is films that were ensemble films because they had big cast because they were low budget films that mm. now no one could afford right um so for example something like wet hot american summer mm-hmm. <laughs> like obviously when that film came out they were all nobodies yeah. and you know you wind the clock later and they're trying to make the kind of sequel to it and struggling to get people together because they're all too busy or you know 
directing Oscar nominated movies or, you know, like, you know, being generally important people. Um, mm. But there's there's a film that like no one has seen except me. I'm pretty sure in the world, <laughs> even the people who were involved, um, their mums didn't see this. I'm pretty sure. But there's a film. Have you heard of this film called Ten Years? I have heard of it. I haven't seen it. Yeah, there's a film. It was I. It popped up on my Netflix queue, and I was like, "How have I not heard of this film?" And it's a film that's made in 2011, and it's about a school reunion. And the cast includes no. Channing Tatum, Chris Pratt, Oscar Isaac, Kate Mara, Justin Long, Rosario Dawson, Scott Porter, Aubrey Plaza, Anthony Mackie, and I'm sure there's someone else super famous in it. Ron Livingston, uh, mm. he's in it. There's like a huge cast, and I was like. A, how did I not hear about this film before? And B, imagine what this would cost now to get them together. <laughs> just mm. like Channing Tatum, Chris Pratt and Oscar Isaac in the same movie for a film that would just be largely forgotten. And I watched it. It's really shit. <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> um, it's just so unmemorable. Um, but Oscar Isaac, he sings and plays guitar in it, uh, um, which is nice. Um, but yeah, what like I do like those kind of little like subgenres of films where you know, no one knew at the time that all these people would go on to be huge successes. Mm. And obviously the most famous example of that would be something like Dazed and Confused, which mm. really yeah. does have like a cast where you look at it, it's like, wow, this is like all of 90s cinema just showed up for this yes. one. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yeah. Even had Parker Posey in it. It's not yeah. made in the 90s if it didn't have Parker Posey in it. Nope, that's the exactly. rule. That's the rule. We don't make them, we mm-hmm. just enforce them. Um. (laughs) (laughs) what genres generally play well in terms of ensembles because i'm looking at the list i have there are some that you know really stand out like disaster movies are probably the key one yeah Uh, something like the towering inferno is kind of another one another one that has like just an insanely stacked cast of very famous people or Mm -hmm. side and adventure from the same era basically any big event where this one terrible thing is happening and it's going to affect just a ton of people. And so you get to show like all of these different stories and they all have their own tension of people trying to survive. So also in the 90s, Independence Day would be a big example of that. And on a less serious note, like Mars Attacks, which is a movie mm. which has, an, yeah. an, like when you look at that cast, it is, is ridiculous how many famous people were in Mars Attacks. And I think that to go back to the point you made about like directors, you know, being suddenly finding they can work with big famous people that i think that mm. that's also an example of how there's kind of a two-way street there because it's not just oh suddenly i can work with a lot of people it's like oh all these people want to work with me and uh, sometimes you end up with a situation where mars attacks where seemingly everyone in hollywood was like yeah great like jack nicholson just <laughs> shows like i'll play two characters for no reason great i'll have a great time Mm, yeah i think in terms of genres a pretty big one is probably like war movies mm, um, yeah. like going back to like kind of old school hollywood they'd have like something like the longest day had a huge uh massive cast uh of kind of you know real big heavy hitters um but then more recently i guess say more recently 22 years ago the thin red line mm. um which is a film which is kind of a, a weird outlier in a conversation about ensembles because the reason that this film has such a preposterous ensemble and of of like a real mixture of kind of like A-list Hollywood stars who turn up for literally seconds and then disappear to, you know, kind of just like amazing character actors who are, who are in it throughout is because Terrence Malick hadn't made a film for like 21 years or something mm. and he suddenly announces he's going to do it, this kind of like reclusive you know genius and then everyone wanted to be with it and everyone wanted to be in it and i think like the 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 kind of stories about who was even cut out of it i think i'm not sure whether all of them are true um (laughs) but i think like uh was uh, mickey rourke was supposed to have been in it and cut out of it vigo mortensen supposed to be in it and cut out of it martin sheen um i'm sure there were others as well but yeah, and I think Billy Bob Thornton did like three hours of narration for it, and that all got abandoned. But you got people like John Travolta, Nick Nolte, George Clooney all turn up in kind of small scenes. John Cusack, Jim Caviezel, Adrian Brody. Like, <laughs> the cast is... Ap- Sean Penn, fuck man, Sean Penn's in like one of the main characters. Um, <laughs> but like you say, it's it's it's... It's like the disaster movie. It's a, you know, a singular event. The film's about war. It's not about one person's a thing like kind of uh 
um, kind of experience in it. And it's told through the eyes of all these kind of pieces of this huge uh, machine that's kind of churning its way through humanity. And yeah, that's the one I, if I ever think of Ensemble, that's the one I always think of because that is an absurd film that somehow doesn't creak under the weight of everyone in it. I mean, there's bits where George Clooney turns up and you're like, oh, was that uh, was that George? And then it's gone. Um, <laughs> and you kind of just forget he was there. Um, but yeah, um, I mean, Platoon is another film that was perhaps, when it was made, didn't realise how bigger stars the, the, the people in it would go on to be. Mm. But yeah, um, The Thin Red Line's a really interesting one just because it was yeah less about who the director could get and more like all the people who just desperately wanted to work with Terrence Malick. I speaking of absurd and not creaking under the weight. I have to say, I think genre wise, there's something about really dark comedy that suits a cast of many. I think something to do possibly with characters that are all quite similar in their misfitishness. Mm-hmm. Looking at things like the films of John Waters. But also possibly one of my favourite films ever, um, Happiness, Todd Solondz's. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I I love that film. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that even though Happiness, correct me if I'm wrong, but at the time no one in that film was a mega mega star. Like it was kind of towards the end of the '90s. But in that real, I mean, yeah, Parker Posey's not in it, so do we believe it really um (laughs) but no one was huge apart from maybe like john lovitz i think and and molly shannon but it had a lot of like quite familiar snl sort of comedy faces in amongst some really with some some incredible dramatic actors as well i mean like jared harris and laura flynn boyle but beyond that it wasn't like a veritable constellation of stars. And I think there was something quite even about that, that everyone looked very real. Um, mm. And everyone is kind of just as awful as each other, apart from maybe Dylan mm. Baker. <laughs> um, mm. but... <laughs> and, and not for people who've not seen the movie, not because he's the good one. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, have to, yes. Thank you, Ed, for that clarification. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'd say that's ab- absurd and disturbing. Just, abs- mm. I was trying to put Manto there. Just leave it, Emily. But yeah, mm-hmm. as as that's one that really sticks in my mind as a truly ensemble film. Mm, I want as soon as you said dark comedy, my mind went to something like um, your friends and neighbors, the Neil Le- mm. Neil Laboo movie, and I kind of wonder just from listening from you talking there, just wondering whether. The reason that dark comedy works is because no one would enjoy it if only one person was an awful misanthrope. But if mm. six out of six of the people in it are all as bad as each other, it suddenly becomes less unbearable. If they're yeah. awful in different ways, so you can kind of get mm. a bit of a break from Philip Seymour Hoffman like phoning up people and and wanking off. Like if it's mm. if it was just that for an hour and a half, it'd probably be a bit much. But yeah. if, you, if you cut to someone else just being really terrible instead, then yeah, at least it's like, oh, what a relief. Yeah. Not that anyone has ever said that watching happiness. Um, yeah, bad date movie, bad date movie. Oh found, that out, found that out the hard way. <laughs> uh, also in terms of genres that seem to fit uh, a big ensemble well, I, f- I found was uh, detective movies. Mainly, particularly um, Hercule Poirot adaptations. Mm. Because... Yes. Although Poirot is obviously the main character and he's the one who's kind of like the focus of the story and his investigation in something like Murder on the Orient Express, all of the other characters have to be well-developed because for the mystery to work, you need to understand who they are, where they're coming from, what their motivations might be, if you know their alibis make sense and things like that. I think that is, uh, is kind of like a real great use of an ensemble and why you often see versions of that story those stories told with like big uh celebrity casts as well because you're guaranteed that even if you're in the grand scheme of what the mystery is a fairly minor c- character you'll probably get a couple of really good scenes and you'll get to you know to kind of like uh show off a little bit and that's kind of another thing that's i think nice about a movie that has a big ensemble like that is that it, it can often be a real nice showcase for actors 
where they can come in. They don't have to shoulder the burden of the whole movie. They can just kind of like play around and have a bit of fun, which I think is also something you see in in uh, in Boogie Nights with like Burt Reynolds' performance. Mm. I think it's what you were saying about having fun. I remember reading an interview with Ray Fiennes when they were like, you know, do you do you not find it beneath you that you're in? Uh, the Harry Potter movies, and he's like, are you fucking joking? Like, most of the stuff I do is really serious. Mm. I get to turn up, put a funny nose on, and just do a big, really broad panto performance for a couple of days, and I have a right laugh. Yeah. Uh, I think you also maybe see that in something like uh, Hail Caesar, again, to go on to talk about Ray Fiennes. Like, that seems like a movie where everyone's kind of like compartmentalized and they're off in their own thing and the only thing connecting all these characters is that josh brolin is walking around talking to them but like when they're on they get to show off and have a lot of fun Mm. it's amazing that like i always forget how many good films the coen brothers have made because until you just mentioned it i had completely forgotten about the film um hail caesar and not because it's forgettable it's just i've just like forgotten about it because i've probably seen three more of their films since mm. um and i just remembered everything in that film and how funny and good it was <laughs> you had just a real proustian rush of like the whole movie just flashing through your eyes yeah <laughs> for me yeah. the one the, the the moment in that that always i always think of is uh old Aaron reich just like waiting around for the girl he's going on a date with and just kind of like playing with his playing with his lasso, and then she kind of comes out and does the like dance with like an apple on her head, and it's just like oh, this is just really fun and charming. <laughs> and these two people just like amusing each other. And I always think about like that as just like a lovely little small moment that absolutely doesn't need to be in the movie in terms of like plot, but is essential to making you just like really love these characters. Mm. There's um, just uh, one more kind of ensemble, which is the film in which no one in it is not an A-list star. Mm-hmm. So like more latterly, kind of the Avengers movies, yeah. like anyone, there's no one in it who's not, unless you're an, a background extra, you are a A-list Hollywood star. Uh, but going back on a kind of slightly smaller note, something like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Oh yeah. It's just like, there's like 10 people in that movie and the least famous one is an Oscar winner. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, which is kind of crazy that that, yeah, but then the films that are small scale kind of contained like in slightly smaller locales, things like Reservoir Dogs, the aforementioned, are easier to get a kind of a more impressive cast together, I guess. Mm, yeah, because if you've got like a budget of only like five million, and I guess it's easier to just like give more of it for a bigger star if you're not spending it on anything else. Mm hmm. I think another one that's on a slightly larger scale, and again, to go back to Robert Altman, uh, would be something like Gosford Park, I think also benefits mm. from that a little bit in that it's a single location, but because it's a single location that is very uh, starkly divided by class, there's a lot of opportunities there for drama and satire and comedy and, you know, mystery. That, that's a kind of movie where whenever I think about Gosford Park, I always forget that it's about a murder. <laughs> like, yeah. in my memory, it's just like, oh, yeah, it's just kind of like a slice life, life thing about all of the people living in this big, uh, living or working in this big country home. And then it's like, oh, no, like, uh, someone gets murdered and they have to try and figure out who did it. Mm, who, who's the detective? Is it Stephen Fry? Yes. From memory. Oh, I remember <laughs> Yeah, it's a... It's it's very weird when you see someone like that show up in uh, like that. It's not as distracting as when he shows up in V for Vendetta, but like, but like yeah, someone who's very famous. famous for British comedy things showing up in kind of like a big glossy movie like that and having something of a serious role. You just go, kind of oh, okay, I guess that's something you can do. I had that this week watching Robin and Marion, which is the uh, the the uh, Richard Lester movie from the seventies, which has a kind of like a really stacked cast in terms of like you know Connery plays Robin. Audrey Hepburn plays Maid Marian, Robert yeah. Shaw plays the Sheriff of Nottingham. It's got all these really great people. And then, just weirdly, Ronnie Barker plays Friar Tuck. It's <laughs> kind of like, I didn't even know you did movies, <laughs> at least that point in your career. And um, uh, he's very funny, but he's like, he's really strange. You you told us that in the WhatsApp group earlier this week, but I read it as Ronnie Corbett. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's even funnier. <laughs> 
Yeah, instead of fighting them on a with a stick, he just kind of like pulls up his big chair and just starts telling a, a story <laughs> to kind of distract all the guards. Now, the 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 producer said, uh, <laughs> it just kind of goes off. Oh, that'd be lovely. Oh, I miss Ronnie Corbett. Yeah, <laughs> and he's put him in a chair and suddenly becomes a throne. Mm, yeah, yeah. Both because of his star wattage and his stature. Mm-hmm. So in this episode, we've shot reverse shot recommends, which we talk about a piece of quality that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. We've only got one recommendation this week because we are all very busy and tired. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I at least managed to watch one movie this week and it's uh, one of my favourite movies of last year and uh, something that I think people should really check out, uh, especially because it's nominated for an Oscar. Uh, people should watch it for other reasons, but the fact that it's nominated for an Oscar is kind of incredible. It's a documentary called Hale County, This Morning, This Evening, and it's a really wonderful impressionistic documentary directed by Ramel Ross who was uh, I believe a basketball coach at a high school who moved to this town in kind of rural Alabama and over the course of five or six years just kind of took his camera out and photographed people and recorded people and the film which only runs to like 70 something minutes is an impressionistic collage of all the people that he knew and things that he filmed over the years and you know it's sets out at the beginning pretty much that it wants to offer a different vision of what it is to be black in America. So it's a movie that is really about capturing these small, intimate, poetic moments in life in this part of the country that is often not depicted. And if it's depicted, is not depicted particularly well. And I thought it was a really startling piece of work of free associative editing in in many instances you know he'll do things like cut from footage of beads of sweat falling off of a basketball player onto the ground to rain falling on a pavement there's moments when he will just follow a child running around a living room for like three or four minutes because there's just something so vivid and alive about the way they're running around and just being entertained by the fact that they can run which is uh really really sweet and wonderful there's this really uh wonderful moment where he just sets his camera up to film smoke rising from a fire in front of a tree and someone just comes up to him off camera and just starts asking him what the hell he's doing <laughs> he just has this like conversation with this guy who's really just baffled by the the notion that anyone would want to just sit down with a camera and film some trees for a bit and it's just full of these moments that you don't really see in a lot of documentaries. It was in, in part uh, influenced by the work of uh, Apache Pong Wira Sefakul, who's a filmmaker I, I love and uh, who I think is credited as like creative advisor on the movie, which when it came up, I was like, what? And then instantly thought, oh yeah, that makes total sense. This really does feel like something he would have been involved with. And as I said, it's nominated for an Oscar. I believe it is uh, available to watch on iTunes. You can rent it on iTunes in the US and it also aired on PBS a couple of weeks ago. So if anyone has access to the PBS app, you can watch it on demand. And it is well worth 70 something minutes of your time. It's absolutely uh, delightful. Not the best film nominated for the oscar this year i think that still goes to minding the gap but it's still uh, a really wonderful and distinctive work of art mm, cool if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm Acast. you can hear us on spotify as well if if you so choose and please uh raters reviewers uh, recommend to your friends that's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me. And goodbye from me, you bunch of spice bags. <laughs> <laughs>